This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to Aquarium Mania. I'm your host, Dr. Roy Anong, speaking to you from the University of Florida IFAS Tropical Aquaculture Laboratory. Thanks for joining us. Among the most fascinating of aquarium fishes, the Bashirs or bikers, including the ropefish and the dinosaur or dragon eel, share primeval features with their ancestors, which are some of the earliest and oldest fishes on Earth. My guest today, Josh Pickett, author of the Bashir Handbook, is obsessed with and an expert of this group. Join us as Josh digs up some ancient dirt on these prehistoric yet modern fishes and explains why you'll want to keep them as well. We'll be right back after these messages. Take a bite out of your competition. Advertise your business with an ad in Pet Life Radio podcasts and radio shows. There is no other pet-related media that is as large and reaches more pet parents and pet lovers than Pet Life Radio. With over 7 million monthly listeners, Pet Life Radio podcasts are available on all major podcast platforms. And our live radio stream goes out to over 250 million subscribers on iHeartRadio, Odyssey, TuneIn, Stitcher, and other streaming apps. For more information on how you can advertise on the number one pet podcast and radio network, visit PetLifeRadio.com slash advertise today. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio. My guest today is Josh Pickett, author of the Beesher Handbook. And we're going to go over that pronunciation a number of times before. Hey, Josh, thanks for joining us today. Hi, right, Roy. So, Josh, first, I really want to thank you for writing and uh, you know having such a great reference book for this group of animals, these fish. The graphics and information are incredible, and it looks like you really have gotten a lot of great praise and, and recognition for it, too. But before we get into more detail on the book and talk polypterids, I, I want to get some kind of personal information from you. Hopefully, you don't mind too much. Not far away. So, what were some of the early influences that got you interested in freshwater wildlife? Oh, well... Um... I grew up in a place called Salisbury Plain uh, in Wiltshire in the UK. So I was surrounded by uh, rivers, especially the, the River Avon. Uh, no matter where I moved through there, the Avon was always quite literally at my doorstep. So I, I was surrounded by rivers. I used to go out with a mesh net as well uh, when I was a kid to go out and collect to see what I could find in there. used to get uh, all sorts of like little stone loaches, bullheads, dace, like little water boatman insects, sticklebacks. I found myself getting a little bit obsessed with what was in there because it was such a mystery to me. And then, of course, I was part of a, a club, a river walk club at uh, school as well. So we go on all these river walks. It was mainly for mainly about birds. It was the RSPB Children's Club. And everyone was out looking up for the birds. But I was looking down in the river, just wanting to know what was in there all the time. So, yeah, it sort of a, became a bit of a bit of an obsession for me. Um, and we used to get a fair bit of flooding as well every now and then there. And I remember one day we had quite a bad flood. And I remember walking to school one day and I saw a frog in a little puddle next to the road. And I thought, that's, that's weird, but it fascinated me. So, so every time I walked past a puddle as a kid, I would always look in there to find out, oh, is there any animals in there, any fish, any, uh, and uh, there never was after that. But um, it just, <laughs> even the smallest little bodies of water, I was like, oh, there's, there could be all sorts in there. Um, and 
I'm probably diverging a little bit now, but uh, in Salisbury Plain as well, on a related note with puddles, uh, they even have, uh, I believe it's fairy shrimp. The only endemic population, I think, in England is on a place in Salisbury Plain in Bulford Camp. And the the eggs will dry up. And then when the tank tracks, it's a military military site, when the tank tracks come along, it fills up with water in the puddle and all the uh, fairy shrimp end up hatching through there. So um, That's cool. A little bit of um, army and fairy together, I guess. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. so, hey, so when did you get your very first fish and aquarium? And do you remember what the setup was and how old you were? Oh, wow. Um, I can't quite remember exactly. I mean, I, it's, I mean, I can't remember a time when my family didn't really have fishes, but I, I vaguely remember when I was allowed to keep my own fish. They were, uh, I think I was probably about less than 10, something like that. And they were uh, weather loaches, believe it or not. Really nice. Yeah, uh, I suppose elongated fish sort of always attracted me, eel-like fish. So yeah, and I also had some fire-bellied newts too. So oddballs always uh, attracted me for, for those sorts of fishes. But I I mean, they're only in small tanks. I, I, I didn't really know any better at the time. But yeah, I kept them even well into my 20s as well. So uh, it was only a few years ago when, when they died. So I, I had them for you know, fair old time. They could probably live a hell of a lot longer, but obviously being a kid when I first got them, I probably didn't give them the, the best care. But no, I had them for quite a long time, I, I would have thought, um, but I know they can live much longer. Um, but yeah, six or seven years, I think I closed those tanks down there. So okay. so now I know you um, don't normally do fish as like your job. So what, what is exactly your day job? And how did you decide to incorporate uh, aquatic wildlife and uh, the aquarium fishes into that? I suppose it, it all naturally fell to me. So obviously I worked on the Bashir book and as I was working on that, so obviously I'm, I'm a graphic designer. Um, so I, I design things mainly for print books and magazines. And I started work on the Bashir book. And while I was marketing that, I had other people approach me saying they'd like to do a book as well, or they'd like help, like my help to work on a book too. So, I mean, with Ivan McColgie's book, uh, Fishes of the Orinoco in the Wild, I think that was the next book I did after the Bashir book. They both came out, I think the same month. There's a few other books I've been working on at the moment, some embargoes so I can't quite talk about, but uh, I'm doing a fly fishing book at the moment. Of course, there's a new book coming out as well. So yeah, it just sort of all, all fell into my lap, really, um, without even searching. So yeah, happy with that because I, I, fish and books are two of my biggest passions. So <laughs> to bring them together, you know, it just makes my job so much more enjoyable. So now I want to switch over and talk a little bit about the fish at hand. And before actually we get into the weeds, I, I need help with the uh, the common name pronunciation because I think, you know, you and I discussed before, I've heard it at least three or four different ways. And I, you just pronounced it, on, you know, one of the ways I think I, we talked about before. So can you give us a little bit of background on the, uh, the name of this group and uh, different ways people have been pronouncing this? <laughs> so it's, uh, it's quite an interesting story, really. I mean, of course, language always evolves and changes. Um, so I suppose whatever sticks. I, I know uh, in America, uh, the word, the name bike is used quite a lot. In the UK, birch is also used a lot. But if we want the, the original name, it'd be pronounced something along the lines of uh, Bushir or Bashir. So it, was, it starts off during Napoleon's conquest of Egypt. One of Napoleon's naturalists comes across a spiny fish in the River Nile. Confused what it is, he ends up studying it more and then speaks to some of the locals who live along the Nile River in Egypt. And they say that's an Abu Shir. So Geoffrey, uh, Geoffrey St. Hilaire made the mistake of thinking that was a, a singular, that they were saying a Bashir and not one word Bushir. 
So Geoffrey St. Hilaire ends up giving it um, a modern French spelling. So the SH in that word gets turned to a CH. Um, so the pronunci pronunciation became uh, Bashir in, in the French spelling. Um, there's a bit of an argument, I suppose, or more of a technicality, really, that uh, when the name becomes Latinized, um, you stick with the Latin pronunciation, which would mean the CH becomes a K, so it's biker. Although I don't think that really stuck much in the, the scientific community so much with, with Bashir. I think they, they paid more respect to you know, the original Arabic name. But yeah, no, I mean, that, that's, that's supposedly that. I mean, they, they, you go back, you look at some studies as well that came out shortly after uh, Geoffrey St. Hilaire's first publication because he, yeah, the, the studies that came out then, there was one that spelt, uh, even spelt uh, Bashir as in uh, it was B-I-S-H-I-R. So you could sort of tell that in, in some scientific circles, that was how it was being uh, pronounced. And yeah, Geoffrey St. Hilaire, when he first described it, he didn't even uh, Latinize it properly because it was in French, it was Polyptere Bashir. So that was, you know, mainly the name that was being circulated uh, at the time until it did become Latinized the following year. And I don't think anyone really continued the name. I mean, even still today, while Polypterus Bashir is, is mainly or most likely extinct in, in Egypt and many of the other uh, Northern African countries, and the word is still active today. People still speak it uh, in Arabic in, in much of North Africa. But yeah, no, it's just uh, an interesting name as well. So at the end of the day, I mean, you can pronounce it however you feel comfortable. Um, <laughs> and you, you may get uh, a few... Uh, a few weird looks from some people. I mean, I, I mean, I when I pronounce it Bashir, I still get a few weird looks from people, and and vice versa as well. So it's it doesn't really matter. I mean, language always changes. Um, but you know, it's well, interestingly though, it was I know David Attenborough pronounced it Bashir on a series called Africa. It was a Congo episode where Congo Bashir was eating uh, or hunting a butterfly fish quite unsuccessfully there. So uh, yeah, there's all sorts of okay. references we, we can see. So so I'll go with the uh, biker or Bashir, depending yeah. on where what, what where which country I'm in. No, that sounds good. It's the Bircher one that's weird because I always think, where do they get the extra R from? <laughs> <laughs> so how did you first get involved with uh, Bashir and how many species do you have now? I know you, you mentioned uh, when we talked earlier that you've got a number of these in your, uh, in your home. Oh, well, I have about 13 or 14 species species I've got, I've got every polyptorid species at the moment uh, every every described one that is um so it's amazing they, they can all go together with exception to the ropefish because i mean the ropefish you know for some of the larger lower jaw species of bashir i mean they're essentially just like a bit of a grisly worm um <laughs> but provided the size differences are okay you know they can all go together but i got into them really i mean i, I was obsessed with dinosaurs as a kid and uh, already with the weather loaches you could tell i, I had uh, an affinity to serpentine fishes so uh, when I first saw them, it was love at first sight, really. So, uh, yeah, I think I saw them for sale on, on, on an online forum quite a few years ago. And I just obsessively Googled them to find out as much information as possible. And I, I, as it turns out, Googling them, even still today, is not particularly a great idea. There's just so much misinformation that circles with them. I mean, just take, for example, there's one species, Plipra sansorgi, which is listed on quite a lot of websites at the moment is only reaching 11 inches maximum, but it is one of, if not the largest species of Bashir being reported to over a metre long with estimates to 40, 41 inches, 40 inches in length. Oh, wow. yep. um, so they can get rather large. And also when you look for certain species online, you put in the scientific name or even the common name, for the most part, half of those images will not be the correct species. And a lot of the care sheets you see online are sort of umbrella fact sheets of all the species sort of lumped together. And there's all sorts of discrepancies there, um, even amongst the scientific community as well. I mean, with when it was Polyptherus moklembembe, the smallest species that was, yeah, when it was Polyptherus moklembembe, when that was described, no, it was Retropinus deli, because they, they always get confused. When Retropinus was first described, to describe it, they used two of the type specimens were an undescribed Polyptherus moklembembe. 
So, uh, and that, of course, led to Frank Schaefer's Aqualogue Polypterus book. And it didn't have Mbembe listed yet, because obviously it wasn't described, but it had it listed, it had the images under Retropinus. So that caused so much confusion amongst the scientific community. And it wasn't until Ralph Britz and Timo Moritz did a recent revision, which ended up clearing up a lot of the... A lot of, I mean, a lot of the aquarium community knew which was which, but when it came to a recent study by... I'm going to ask you, since you know we've been talking about these fish, this group of fish, we may have some listeners that have no idea what they even kind of generally look like. So maybe <laughs> if you could do a real you know, brief description of just kind of in general what this group looks like, and then maybe explain a little bit about the fossil history, you know, give us a little bit of a history and evolution lesson, why these are really interesting and probably why they will go into a little more anatomy and biology, but you know, just maybe a little starter there. Right. So Bashir's uh, these rather uh, draconic, elongated ancient fishes. They've been around for, well, in the fossil record, about 150 million years, but estimates can place them back 390 or 384 million years ago, back during the Devonian period. I'll go into the fossil history in a second, but yeah, they, they breathe atmospheric air through two little holes in their head called spiracles, which I think they're, I believe they're the only animal to breathe primarily air through their spiracles, whereas others, you know, that tends not to be the, the only source of breathing. But yeah, and it's really, really interesting. They have armoured ganoid scales. So that's another interesting thing about them. They can be quite aggressive to each other. They're opportunistic. They have rather large mouths. Sometimes they end up biting their tank mates quite often by accident when they feed due to how they feed with inertial suction. But when it comes to injuries as well, there's nothing to worry about. They have things called blastema cells, so regenerative cells like you find in uh, Uridale amphibians. Um, so they can almost entirely grow back their lobe-like fleshy pectoral fins, all of their fins really in, in certain certain areas of them too. But yeah, I, I say lobe-like as well, but they're really ray-finned fishes, uh, not lobe-finned fishes, but because they're a basal ray-finned fish, they share so many similarities today with, with lobe-finned fishes. So I know there's some histological evidence as well. It's not disputed as much anymore, but there are a few, few academics that believe they're not quite situated properly as ray-finned fishes. But that's just because they're mostly both. When you say the low fin, you're talking about like the lung fishes, for example. Yeah, lung fishes, coelacanths, yeah. Okay. So a little bit more about anatomy and biology. Um, you talked about some of it there. Um, I, just kind of going through your book, you know, looking at the teeth and you talked a little bit about why the interesting thing about them probably surviving through all of these different extinction events, you know, really pretty interesting. Can you maybe briefly explain how their anatomy may have helped them in, through some of these challenges as uh, other animals were going extinct by the millions? Uh, well, I could probably explain that more if, if I jump back into their, their, their history. So sure. Uh, let's just say for sake of argument, they emerged around 384 million years ago. Obviously, we're not quite sure what they would have looked like yet because these are very likely still you know, in museum collections, but we've not attributed them to uh, polypteriforms, which is the uh, the order of fishes that Bashirs belong to. But So there's a massive gap in the fossil record, but we found uh, fossils of Bashirs that date back around about 140, 150 million years ago, both continents, so on both, on both Africa and South America, which means you know they would have been there, they would have been on that continent, Gondwana, um, back when... South America and Africa are connected. So there's that. And then, of course, the continent split. And Bashirs at that moment had a body shape closer to that of a typical ray-finned fish. Um, so have, they would have had a rather short body. But there were some species as well. So there was one called Serenoichthys chemcomensis, which was probably the smallest Bashir we know on record, which I think was around two and a half centimetres long, um, maybe three and a half centimetres. So they were from Morocco's Chemkem Bears, which is how they got the name. Um, but they were discovered around about 100 million years ago. But they're around during vacant habitats, 
So there was a lack of diversity in these vacant habitats that led to a boom of diversity too, along the shears because they ended up fitting in more ecological niches due to well, the previous extinction events during then. But this was like around the time when giant Bashir start to appear. So uh, there's one genus called Boetius, which there's multiple species, one formally described species, which is Boetius Bartheli, um, which could grow to over 10 feet long. And uh, yeah, they were preyed upon by things such as the Spinosaurus. They are jumping to say Cretaceous Paleogene. That was back when the dinosaurs were wiped out late Cretaceous was giant Bashirs started to disappear at that point. And then 23 million years ago, I think it was the South American species started to die out too. But yeah, so there's two, going more into their anatomy, uh, it sort of ties in again here. So there's, I would say, hobbyists used to identify certain types of Bashirs and they section them in lower jaw Bashirs and upper jaw Bashirs. So upper jaw Bashirs tend to look a lot more ancient. They're not really, I mean, they're more crocodilian like, but they're actually the more recent species. So they tend to grow larger. There you'll say the, some of the common ones like uh, the Indla Cherry Bashir or the Leprady Bashir, which is now just P. Bashir, the name of the species was first described. And there's that P. Bashir is identical in almost every way to a species that emerged around about 11 and 11.6 million years ago called Polythrus pharaoh. And it's quite contested as well that pharaoh was actually P. Bashir or an earlier form of it. Um, and it's not it's not quite valid as a separate species. That's what Moritz and Brits both argue in one of their recent studies. But yeah, I'd say if that's not a living fossil, I suppose, I don't know what is, because that's almost quite literally an unchanged species of Bashir. But that is also the earliest time in the fossil record we've seen one of these lower jaw Bashirs with that rather elongated crocodile-like mouth and body. And the upper jaw Bashirs, they were the species which we knew could get larger, but they, they came in, in a huge range. But nowadays, the modern upper jaw species tend to stay quite small. We have some of the more colourful markings, um, much more active which I wouldn't say is particularly active for them. But, you know, I mean, an active Bashir is probably active for around six, seven hours um, in a 24-hour period. You know, they're very, very reclusive. But I suppose that's the nature of, of opportunistic fish. They're burrowers as well. So, um, yeah, when a lot, a lot of people as well, when they keep them, they tend to think, oh, I'm just looking at a piece of bogwood. But then you can do all sorts. You can put them on, uh, so they have light-reactive melanophore cells. So they can end up changing colour depending on what their environment's like. So another good example is, Say, for example, with P. Bashir, actually, with the Retropinus Bashir. So, normally, I mean, it's, its common name is called the Zaire Green Bashir, but they um, they tend to have a rather browny beige body. But the moment you put them on a darker substrate, give it a little bit of time, and then you'll start to see beautiful shimmering green appear. And a lot of the species get that too, whereas some will completely, like you've probably seen with some other fish, where you put them on a light substrate, you know, they'll wash out in a few months. Do that with Certain species of Bashir, they'll probably wash out in a few days. But if you, they react really well with red for some reason, red and purple, red and purple light or red and purple substrate, you'll end up giving them such a boost in their markings. So you'll see, say, for example, the um, red substrate for some of them, it will really bring out their markings uh, and then it will sort of slightly wash out their base color. So you've got this increase of contrast on them uh, and they look absolutely sublime on some of them and I've, just, I've seen some really vibrant colors so some red some golds i mean there's there's one species or, or former subspecies now called uh, the gold dust bashir uh, which is now just polypterous palmus but that has some vibrant golds on it and peter gelsi as well is is one of the natural one of the the only species which is naturally red but you get all sorts of beautiful vibrant colors on it too so yeah no it's just they have so many interesting anatomical features to a couple more I wanted to you to touch on. So these guys have the uh, the weird lung, right, as well as the external uh, gills when they're juveniles. Can you maybe talk a little bit about that and why that might have been important? Yes. Yeah, so their 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 lung or lungs. So they have 
similar to us tetrapods as well they have their i think it's their left lung is slightly longer than their right lung so i, I say lung they are in a way they're an adapted swim bladder so their swim bladders have so it's more of a i mean it's more of an ancient lung i suppose so their primary use is for breathing now less so for buoyancy which is why when you know people tend to say oh, when they've got poor balance a lot of people assume oh it's a swim bladder issue but generally with these guys when they have a buoyancy issue it's, it's very rarely to do with their swim bladders or, or lungs really um it tends to be more you know issues like dropsy bacterial infections uh their, their lungs are, are great i mean they can probably go it depends on the species but they normally hold their breath for between 30 minutes to four hours so uh, some of the larger species can go yeah, much longer. Yeah, yeah. The uh, they had the external, kind of the weird external gills in the juvenile. Ah, the external gills, yeah. So these can both grow and recede depending on the oxygenation of the water. They're mainly, well, they almost almost appear when they're juvenile. So obviously their lungs are still forming. So they need to get as much oxygen through the water as possible. At this stage, they're called bimodal breathers. So they can, which means they can breathe, you know, they can respire through two different methods. So they can, they tend to have these gills as well. So a lot of younger bashirs live in the margins. In fact, most most specimens do live in the margins. So it's far safer for them to have external gills too, because they end up risking their life every time they surface for air at that size, because they will be preyed upon by anything, including other Bashirs. Because Bashirs, when they're young, they are very cannibalistic. So it just seems to be a competition thing. But yeah, no, they're incredible fishes, really. One more uh, quick anatomy thing. You had a, a really cool picture of their teeth. So they have like a really strange and large number of teeth. Oh, conical toothbrushes. Yeah. Can you yeah. talk about that? Maybe? <laughs> Yeah, so um, it's just essentially just like like with a lot of other animals, it's uh, to help them grip their prey a lot more. Um, but it also has a weird side effect too uh, that a lot of people tend not to notice that much unless you unless you're really ob closely observing it. So when they so obviously they feed they feed with inertial suction a bit like say axolotls, catfish, uh, aquatic frogs do. So they'll just inhale their food, and with a lot of those animals, they end up swallowing a substrate, mainly gravel or something like that, and, they, and get impacted um, or just buoyancy issues with Bashir they also have paired gular plates um so I think they're the only fish to have paired gular plates as well and that actually aids in, with advanced control of the mouth so when you're watching a lot of these Bashirs as well uh, when they feed they suck in the food they suck in a, a bit of gravel as well you can just watch them juggle it around decide whether or not they should eat it if not they'll spit it out and that tends to happen quite quite a lot with them just due to how they uh, how they feed but you can see as well, they uh, they can sometimes get smaller particles as well. So for example, sand or some detritus, which can get stuck in their uh, conical tooth patches on the roof of their mouth. And of course, these tooth patches, it's hundreds upon hundreds of these fine teeth. And it's just, just essentially to aid with gripping prey. But of course, when they get a little bit of grit caught in there as well, you'll see them shake their head and try to get it out. So I suppose it's, it's a weird side effect to prevent them to uh, to prevent them from becoming impacted too much, eating too much substrate without you know, in, intending to. So there's a few theories as well. They, um, they use some stones like gastroliths. I know there's been a few studies where, I mean, I'll probably have to look into this more, but I know there's, there's been a couple of studies where detected stones in the stomach not many and because they've got quite a short digestive tract and they do eat due to the nature of the mouth they're quite broad heads they tend to swallow prey items whole you know live ones of course they'll swallow whole uh so quite often they'll probably need help to to digest these i know some african i know african arowana do in some instances as well they'll swallow like a small stone if possible because they have a gizzard too for that so because they're not primarily filter feed as well i think but anyway i'm, I'm diverging now but yeah no it's just they could do all sorts really with the features fascinating yeah. definitely well you know what let's take a short break and uh we'll we'll talk a little bit more about these specific fish in the aquariums so let's take a short break we'll continue our discussion with my guest josh pickett author of the Bashir handbook after these messages from our sponsors Molly, here's your dinner. <coughs> Zeus, that's not your food. 
Don't let that happen to your precious cat. Elevate your cat's eating experience with the Cat Tree Tray. The Cat Tree Tray keeps your cat's food off the floor and conveniently located on the cat tree. It's the perfect way to eat. It's a beautiful wrought iron tray that easily attaches to your cat tree and keeps dogs and other critters out of your cat's dish. A must for multi-pet households. There's a 6-inch tray for large bowls and a 4-inch tray for smaller bowls. Purchase your cat tree tray today. Go right now to CatTreeTray.com. That's CatTreeTray.com. C-A-T-T-R-E-E-T-R-A-Y.com. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets on Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. And we're back and continuing our conversation with my guest, author Josh Pickett. So, Josh, you gave us a really great introduction into some of the kind of evolution and fascination just by with appearance of these group of fishes. Let, let's talk a little bit about keeping them in aquarium now and what some of the things and challenges involved with that are. So, what are some good starter species for people that, you know, maybe have never obviously even seen these or, you know, but they like them and they're interested? And why would these be good starter species? Okay, right. So a lot of people probably heard of the dinosaur bashir or dragon eel, as it's called, which is actually Polyptera senegalis, the Senegal bashir. They could be a great start species, mostly because they're very cheap, they're readily available. They could get away with a 75 gallon aquarium. I would say, really, you know, it's best to keep them in a, a 90 gallon or above, simply because these, they, while still relatively small, they can grow to, you know, over a foot long. But no, they're, they're great. I mean, it's not provided you haven't got anything which can fit in their mouth, they're one of the more active species. They're very social, so they, they, they absolutely love groups. What else is there? You know, there's just it's a really interesting fish to keep, to be honest. I mean, it's, they're, they're quite cute, too. Um, they have that going for them, whereas some of the other Bashirs, not, not so much, um, especially <laughs> the lower jaws, although some people might disagree, but I find them all cute, really. But, you know, they're, they're easy to keep, easy to feed, don't get ridiculously big. Another good species would be Plecris palmus. Again, very social. These guys live primarily in forest-shielded areas as well. So some tannin-stained waters will be appreciated. It's not too fussy, really. But yeah, they get around about 9 to 16 inches. Polyptherus moklembembe is another one, a lot more reclusive, though, but it is the smallest species, growing from 9 to 14 inches. Polyptherus retropinus is another great one, very elongate. I would say it's probably the smallest, technically, of the polyptherus species, but not in length, more in, in uh, girth and head size. Head is a little bit broader, but it's very unlikely they'll eat you know, fish much smaller than, you know, a couple of inches. You know, one, one thing I realized we didn't talk about in anatomy is their kind of dorsal fin. So, oh, yeah. so <laughs> yeah, to maybe mention that for folks that have never actually seen these or, or are interested in them, explain their dorsal finish. So the dorsal fins are a series of connected fins. So they all vary, uh, vary per species. And they also help with identification as well, because some of them have different counts. So they're called finlets. Some species might have between 9 to 13 finlets, others 14 or over. Some are set anterior, closer to the head. Others are set posterior, further to the back. So uh, if you're very unsure on what species is what, because, say, for example, some may be born without markings, some may be washed out, then for hobbyists, at least, it, it tends to be a good rule of thumb to just count the dorsal finlets, find out where they're positioned. Uh, these finlets are also used for displaying to each other. They also protect themselves as well because they have uh, they have dorsal spines uh, within each one. And of course, they hurt if you get pricked by them. So you know, I've, I've been pricked many times by them. 
But yeah, no, they're, they're a great defense mechanism. Uh, there was even an interesting thing as well. There was, uh, going back with the fossils, there was one species called Inbecatemia, and there's probably two more as well. Well, that's the genus, sorry, which at one point during the 90s, it was thought to believe that they could tilt their uh, dorsal finlets 45 degrees left and right rather than you know up and down so it was through um, a specialized scale they thought they could have done that um, but it was later found out in a, a follow-up study that there are actually spines in either the pelvic fins or the pectoral fins which again would still be a first discovery for them because modern Bashir species only have spines in their dorsal finlets so going back to the aquariums now, are there specific kind of water quality requirements or filtration or substrate? What would be kind of a good sort of setup that would be maybe comfortable for them or, or something that they might be more amenable to? Right. So I say we'll, I'll start with water requirements. So they are really not fussy. Bashirs are found in a huge range of environments. So I, you know, I've, you know, I know, I know they're around in sort of low pH, you know, around 6.5. To say, for example, Lake Takana, a very shallow lake, very shallow alkaline lake with pH that goes up to about 10. And there's, I believe, two or three species in there as well. So, for example, the Senegal Bashir is in there and P. Bashir is also in there. And of course, they're widespread in every other country as well. I mean, the Senegal Bashir is also found, uh, it's also one of the most northern species, only because um, most of the others have sort of gone extinct in North Africa. But there's one small population, small relic population in an oasis in the Sahara Desert, which probably only grows a few inch long. That's just down to growing desertification of Africa, which sort of left them isolated in there. But there's all sorts of other species as well where you can find, you know, you can find them in large rivers, large crystal clear rivers, tannin stained streams, a variety of, I mean, even in Lake Tanganyika, you know, the second oldest lake, second deepest lake in the world. Yeah, I mean, huge Huge range of environment. I mean, you can find some in shallow pools as well, especially during the rainy season. They'll probably hang out in there. You know, they're fairly amphibious too as well. That's probably something to add. So they're not a true migratory fish as well, um, but some have been known to leave lakes, spill out into rivers, and then return back to those lakes. It's how a lot of fishers in Cameroon end up catching the bashirs. They end up setting up uh, these things called uh, Ingura traps. So these very tall traps that come out of the water. So when they know the bashirs are returning, so these traps are just completely made out of wood. So smaller bashirs can swim right through. And it just tends to be, you know, some maybe around a foot longer or, or larger, they get trapped in them. Uh, and of course, because the traps uh, are so tall, they come out of the surface of the water. The bashirs can still go up for air. So the, their spines aren't getting caught in any nets. They're not always being, you know, caught through adding in some poisons to the water as well. I know uh, there is one type that I think it comes from a certain type of potato as well, where they they sort of splash that in the water too, which ends up drawing them closer to the traps, but they don't they don't always need to do that. But yeah, there's some, some incredible ways to, to catch them too. Yeah. Okay. So they, it sounds like they're pretty good water quality wise. What about, I guess, substrate and, you know, decor or plants, anything like that? Would that be... Uh... Sand is always best, mostly because they burrow. Uh, if you end up having gravel, they can end up sort of damaging their nares. For the most part, they won't really burrow unless they're completely stressed. They, they burrow under them. They feel a lot more safe and a lot more secure. Um, so it's always good to have that in there. But if your Bashir is very comfortable, um, yeah, they likely won't be burrowing too much except for, for snails. And they're not particularly great at catching them anyway, but they do they do like to try with catching snails. So yeah, substrates tend to be good. Quite a popular one is garnet sand. Uh, a lot of people make the mistake though, of buying uh, abrasive garnet sand for uh, sandblasting. And of course, that's not always good on their stomach, especially if they end up end up swallowing it. But one is quite popular, at least in India and China, is called river garnet sand. So it has rich red colour again, really helps boost their contrast in markings. And it's something you just tend up to get in some of the other silica sands, 
as well, red silica sand. So that, that tends to be quite popular. Uh, myself, really, I, I like to use a, a plant-based substrate. So you sort of get the best of both worlds. It feels a bit more natural, but it's also not too light to wash them out. And it's probably about the, the right wavelength of light, really, to bring out the markings. But not not quite as good as a red substrate, but it's a nice middle ground, I think. But substrates okay. can be great. Plants as well, they tend to uproot quite a lot of plants. I wouldn't worry too much, though. I mean, they don't always uproot them all the time unless you've really got it densely planted. Um, but I would say plants are always a necessity. It, it really doesn't matter what. They like to use bushy plants as well to breed. Try to keep something in the margins, too. Uh, what I do is I, I, I keep like a, a canopy area above my tank and I make sure you always keep a tight lid. But if you can keep a, keep a canopy area in there, then the fish can end up jumping without escaping the tank and without hitting a lid and that also means you've got a collection of humid air just above the water level you can have the opportunity for plants to grow along the uh along the brace bars of the aquarium i use i think i've got two pothos mother plants with the roots just growing in the water and the leaves themselves just growing above and the bashirs will just hang in those roots the whole time they absolutely love it because they end up finding insects in there as well at least in the wild especially so uh, it will certainly feel a lot more natural for them that's right. You did mention, I think, in the book that they can escape pretty easily or readily. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to, so, yeah. But don't worry too much if they do jump out, as long as you're very vigilant in catching them, because provided they stay they stay damp, they can survive indefinitely out of the water. There was even uh, Professor Emily Standen, who, as well, uh, from the University of Ottawa, who ended up raising them on land for many, many months as well. And they it was incredible how they adapted to that. They ended up lifting their pectoral fins up higher for each step on the ones that were raised on land. So the, this another amazing feature as well called bone plasticity. And uh, another latest study she did as well sort of showed how they prevented their gills from collapsing as well, just by adapting to that. Uh, and that's not even just a generate. That's just one generation. It's yeah. no breeding at all. So yeah, and I just thought that was that was incredible. Yeah, that is definitely. Uh, so so what about nutrition? What what are you feeding yours, or what's kind of recommended? Uh, right. So species of Bashir are either insectivores, uh, mainly the, the upper jaw Bashirs are insectivores and the lower jaws are piscivores, um, but they tend to have a bit of both really, uh, which means especially with the insectivores, they have a very broad range of, of nutrition they need, especially, especially with minerals too. So a lot of people tend to think, okay, well, I'll I'll get a few, you know, a few insects from from the shop to, you know, feed. Because a lot of people tend to go, they want to go for a really natural diet. But then you end up, you can end up being deficient in certain areas as well. Whereas I found a, a good quality carnivore pellet, especially um, an insectivore pellet, will cover a lot of their nutritional needs. I wouldn't worry too much about the fillers because make sure it's not too much fillers. Uh, they tend to digest grain surprisingly well, a bit like African arowana as well. They're also there was a group of them uh, that were even fed exclusively on grain, uh, and they just shot up in size. So yeah, Bashirs are very adaptive towards that. They probably need around about 40% protein, no more than 10% fat in their diet. A bit more than that, you end up giving them fatty liver disease, all sorts of other health issues can come to that. But yeah, they also, uh, a lot of people tend to think that, oh, okay, they're a predatory fish, I'll feed them something like beef heart or chicken, which is probably something I'd like to talk to you about as well, given your background too, is... I know Bashirs lack a special type of collagenase enzyme, which helps them break down the collagen bonds in these types of food. But in place of that, they have a chitinase, a chitinase uh, enzyme. Okay, for the insects. For the, the insects. insects, yeah, yeah. Some people tend to make the argument that, you know, they tend to find, you know, prey items like in the wild, small birds, rodents. But again, it's, it's never really good for it in, in the long run. I mean, they're highly opportunistic fishes. And another interesting thing about them as well, which you need to look out for, is their stomach packers. So they will quite literally feed, binge as much as possible. They tend to know when to stop, but they don't know when the next meal is coming. So uh, if you're feeding almost every other day, quite large quantities, they will just continue to eat and eat and eat. And they end up getting very fatty. I mean, I've seen some Bashirs with super high shoulders, a bit like some of the 
carp you get down here at fisheries. Yeah, really. um, very, very, very fatty. I mean, they're serpentine fishes. They need to be quite elongate, very slim, not thin though, but yeah, you just need to sort of be careful. I mean, I, I tend to feed, normally with most fishes, I, I'll feed what they can eat in about three minutes. Anything that's left in there, I'll remove. The shears are a little, bit, a little bit slower. I'll tend to feed what they can eat in about 10 minutes. Any more than that, I'll take out the food before it spoils. So so what I'm hearing is that you, uh, you're suggesting that people don't go out and get roadkill and feed uh, roadkill. Definitely not. Definitely not. Okay. Or, or a piece of chicken. Or uh, <laughs> yeah, I know right. there's a whole trend in the 80s with discus <laughs> as well about... Uh, yeah, the beef hard and all that stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. So one other thing I wanted to ask you about, and, and uh, you kind of go into this in the book as well, um, you know, kind of wild-caught versus aquaculture species. Uh, maybe can you uh, talk briefly about some of the different sort of varieties that have come out of the aquaculture types of uh, of the shears? Oh, yes. There's one of which is probably one of my favorites, actually. It is called, it's a, it's a type of uh, Dalhousie Bashir, and it has, so it's been selectively bred to have these absolutely beautiful broken markings so uh they have quite a, a nice grayish body like the, like the ordinary species does but their dorsolateral bars their tiger-like stripes end up breaking up completely so it, it almost has this like broken glass effect all over it and i believe they might probably manage that through selective breeding by they'd always end up because dalhousie bashir they uh wild uh, dalhousie bashir they don't have perfect bars so you can end up selectively breeding them to you know break up those bars even more right to the point where you can even create them bandless but there's also some as well that have these really nice solid bars which i've also seen them selectively breed so they have these proper thick dense tiger-like stripes as well but you know captive breeding i think all but one species now has been bred in captivity and that's the weeksy bashir and technically it has been bred but with another species of bashir it's been hybridized but it hasn't been bred with another weeksy I've had eggs of that before. I've been unsuccessful in recovering them simply because they, they like to scatter their eggs. And of course, I have an African arowana as well, which takes their eggs right away. That's an unfortunate thing. But yeah, they're not particularly hard to breed, bashirs. Rope fish, though, they are very hard to breed, especially when it comes to rearing the fry. So another interesting thing about uh, rope fish as well, actually, is uh, so rope fish, which are you know cousin of bashirs, they, they do not have a pelvic fin. So their pelvic fins receded completely, but they do have a vestigial pelvic fin. So if any of you are ever lucky to breed a rope fish, if you study the embryo and even the young fry, you will see a little vestigial pelvic fin there. But as it gets larger, it vanishes completely. It's there during the developmental stage. But yeah, the ropefish fry tend not to live much more than uh, a few months. But I think that may have something to do with the fact that the inland ropefish, which come from exclusively freshwater, near threatened or threatened, I think. And I don't think they're actually available in the aquarium trade. Whereas the brackish ropefish, more coastal ones, they are the ones which are in the hobby. They're not completely brackish. Um, they move further inland. But I think maybe it has something to do with the fry. That's the whole reason why. Because I know I know at least four people who, who have bred them, but they've never been able to raise the fry. Even Ralph Britz as well. I think the first recorded breeding of him, him and Rita, um, yeah, I think they bred them through the 90s repeatedly. Um, but they could never have the fry survive for very long. That's interesting. Yeah. So go, uh, going back to, um, so maybe briefly, and then we're going to probably close this up. And I, I obviously have a lot more questions, but unfortunately, <laughs> we're, uh, we get, we're run out of time. So with the wild caught shears and I guess their status, you know, what can you tell us a little bit about conservation status and, and collection, that sort of thing? So mostly all Bashirs are, um, are not during the IUCN, they're, they're not of concern. But then again, that only lumps them into how the species is doing as a whole. And of course, that doesn't represent local areas. Say, for example, the eastern uh, East African populations of Plitherosaurus uh, pinus, which is another popular aquarium species, but they are, I believe they're threatened now as well there. 
and in currently in decline. Of course, like the ropefish, which we just mentioned as well, uh, they're also in quick decline. And of course, that's mainly due to palm oil plantations, growing towns and villages around them, habitats being destroyed. Thankfully, a lot of the wild caught species, though, don't really come from these areas either. And yeah, a lot of the fish is there. Again, when it comes to some of the poorer areas, conservation isn't really a, a priority for them mostly because it's a it's an old concept for a few people over there as well but of course conservation is just as much about people as it is fish uh, and of course there's a great incentive there as well so with peeper shear especially in cameroon as well uh, one type of peeper shear there they collect it and it can sell for even over here for hundreds so of course one of them tends to be you know a few of them tend to be enough to to feed a village so they, they have this incentive to make sure these areas are you know, they're not taken too much. I remember I spoke to one fisher there called Ngandujiku, and he he always catches large ones. I've seen some pictures he sent me of some over a metre long. I think absolutely incredible. Um, not many people think Bashirs can get that large, but some of them can do. And he says, I'll just put these ones back. He always leaves the smallest ones in there and always respects the largest ones and just tends to take ones of intermediate sizes. But not all, he doesn't even take that many as well because he he thinks this is enough to to you know fund schools, feed the whole village, and yeah, he's not selfish at all. I mean, a lot of fishers like that are, are like that in, in, in Cameroon as well in certain areas too. So they are for the most part um, sourced quite sustainably. So uh, another question before I, I I do close this up a little bit, but well, what's <laughs> kind of the average? What's kind of the average uh, lifespan? I guess or or a range of lifespans for the group. Uh, well, they can live up to maybe even over 40 years. Uh, the oldest one I know of was 38 years or 37 years from uh, a keeper in Japan. And that was a clitoris and a cherry. So, yeah, um, wow. I mean, yeah. most people, uh, thankfully, they haven't really been in the trade that long. It's probably been about 40, 50 years, if that really. And some of the other species have only appeared in the trade the last 10 years. So people are only keeping them, you know, we're going to be seeing a lot more a lot older, a lot more older uh, Bashirs, I think, in the future, especially because husbandry is now starting to get better. A lot of people didn't really know much about them, including scientists who studied them themselves. They were very unfamiliar with a lot of them. So now people are, are taking care of them better. We'll be seeing much long-lived ones, I, I would assume. And even the the oldest one, which I've seen, which is 37 or 38 years old, didn't look particularly old. And I know you, you can tell as well with some of them, you can't estimate an exact age, but you can tell, you know, roughly if it's young mature or very matured is with ray fin fishes especially with the shears as well is you have like branching on the fin rays so you get little fork tips and the more branching there is you sort of tend to get a general idea of not the age but whereabouts roughly it is in its life is it a very old specimen or is it still matured or still young and i think that was also how they worked out that that extinct species which is two and a half centimeters long serenorichthys chemcomensis was an adult specimen because it was very well preserved and you could see branching in the fin rays so they knew it was a matured specimen okay yeah i remember that picture from your book well unfortunately we're out of time josh uh really really again enjoyed going through and, and learning a lot through your book want to thank you josh and our producer mark winner for making the show possible did you have any final words of wisdom josh for our, our listeners oh uh, yeah Bashirs just absolutely incredible fishes they're very very rewarding as well it's a challenge to breed them but again it's it's so much fun when you do they can lay tens and tens of eggs they've got incredible adhesive organs as well they're not they're not great parents, but that's also when uh, you get to step in and sort of fill in that because they, they tend to scatter their eggs and sort of leave it to fate, really. But honestly, aside from that, that little downside, no, they're incredible fishes. And, you know, you really, you know, enjoy, especially if you love dinosaurs in history. Yeah, they're, they're the fish for you. 
Awesome. Thanks a lot. So everyone, please be sure to check out Josh's Aquarium Mania webpage, which will include a link to see and uh, potentially uh, to get his book. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for a show, email me at drroy at petliferadio.com. That's D-R-R-O-Y at petliferadio.com. Until next time, please visit your local aquarium stores, keep your tanks clean and your fish healthy, and definitely be sure to check out Josh's The Bashir Handbook. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.